This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back, dear listeners. You are tuned in to another episode of Conflicted. I'm Thomas Small, and as ever, I'm joined by my unrivaled co-host, Eamon Dean. Hi, Eamon. Hi, Thomas. Of course I'm unrivaled because no one will dare to rival me. No one would dare to rival you, Eamon. No one could rival you, at least not in my heart. Good. Except possibly someone else, as we'll find out in a bit. But Eamon, I am extremely excited, not just about this episode, but the next five episodes of Conflicted. Indeed. All of which return to a subject that we haven't talked about in any detail since our first season, which is Yemen. Oh, Yemen. Happy Yemen. Happy Yemen, happy Yemen, sad Yemen, and everything in between. The story of Yemen is just about the most exciting and complicated story in the world. So let's not waste any time. Dear listener, do you want to understand the civil war, which has been tearing Yemen apart since 2014? And do you want to learn about the Houthis, a group who, along with Hamas, are part of Iran's axis of resistance, have recently been firing rockets towards Israel, and could soon join a wider regional conflict in Gaza? Do you want to know these things? Well, you've come to the right place. We're going back in time to provide as much history as you need to understand what's going on there in the present. It's a complex spider's web of a country with multiple personalities split geographically, tribally, religiously, politically, North, South, Shia, Sunni, oh communist, nationalist, calm down, you calm name down, it. Calm down. <laughs> <laughs> Let's jump right in. Now, Eamon, normally I rely on you to give me the on-the-ground reality of what's been going on in the Middle East, and you do a pretty good job of it. Yeah, of course I do a pretty good job of it. Uh, you know, that's the <laughs> verdict that I've been handed by so many listeners. <laughs> but for the next few weeks, we'll be doing something we've never done before on Conflicted. This week, two becomes three. We've got a guest and an old friend of both of ours in the studio with us a Yemeni journalist and political activist who was previously an advisor to the Yemeni embassy in London and has done some amazing work bringing the crisis of the past decade to the world. He's also a dear listener to the show himself. Bara Shaban is here with us. Bara, hello and welcome. Hello, Thomas. Hi, Ayman. I am very, very excited to be on the show today. And actually, <laughs> I have been tuning in on Conflicted, I think, since the beginning. I can't remember the number of times and planes I've taken while I have just the earplug on my, in my ears and just listening again and again to Conflicted. So I am pretty much excited. Well, we're very excited. Eamon, I mean, you and Barah have known each other for a while. Isn't that right? Indeed, I still remember those romantic nights in Zanzibar, you know, where we were the, in that hotel. Boys, I, boys, my I, goodness, no, get no, a room, okay. take it offline. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was such a funny way that we met. I mean, you know, we were such a funny company. So it was Barasheban, you know, that amazing political activist from Yemen. And we have the former Palestinian ambassador, you know, to uh, London. And we have with us the former head of counterterrorism to MI6. And then me, all of us surrounded by so many political figures from Somalia, from Uganda, from uh, Kenya, from Ethiopia, from Tanzania, goodness, like, and we were all in a conference trying to bring peace to Somalia. That was... A Futile. <laughs> Absolutely, because five years ago, and still there is a war in Somalia, so we failed miserably, but, uh, but what we succeeded is that we became friends. I don't know how, but we did. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd say that's a remarkable success. So because actually we remained we remained in touch and we hope we're going to see peace in Somalia very soon. Inshallah. But at least our friendship will see, uh, we'll continue to have the peace. We'll see. <laughs> Whereas I met uh, Barah eight years ago now, uh, when I was working on a film, a documentary film about the Yemen conflict, it had just spilled over into the international consciousness. And I found you an invaluable resource of information. You were a great interviewee, 
and you became a very good friend. So we're very happy to have you on the show. Barat, what is filling your time these days? Well, I'm pretty much still occupied with the ongoing situation in Yemen. I still provide consultancies for different entities. I still continue documenting human rights abuses that occur inside Yemen and basically trying to continue the work that me and my colleagues from 2013 started, which was the National Dialogue Conference. That was the uh, convention that brought together all of the political Yemeni factions to negotiate the framework of the new constitution. And we're still trying to meet, trying to discuss, um, and flying to different parts of the world, trying to uh, see what we can do for Yemen. Well, that's why you're here, to give us a first-hand account of what's still a very live conflict there in Yemen, one which we've discussed before on Conflicted. But before we go back to look at Yemen's history, Barat, let's find out a bit more of, about your history. <laughs> we know who you are, Eamon and I know, but the dear listener doesn't. Who are you really? Where do you come from? <laughs> so I'm born in Sana'a, uh, the capital of Yemen. And shortly after I was born, I, my parents uh, came to the UK for their studies. My family come from uh, Hajjah. This is a province in the north of Yemen, up in the highlands. And I come from a middle class, I would say, regular family, but in a way have been entangled within Yemen's uh, different political Yemeni, uh, Yemeni factions. Well, that's the thing about Yemen. Everything's entangled with everything else there. Uh, it's disentangling Yemen that we're going to try to do here. We're going to fail because it's impossible, but we're going to try. But before we start that out, let's talk about Yemen in the Arab imagination. Uh, or really even in, in the world's imagination. I mean, Yemen is, for many people, quite a romanticized kind of place. I think especially in the Arab and Middle Eastern worlds. I mean, Eamon, what does Yemen mean to you as a kind of Saudi, educated, Muslim, Arab man? When you think of Yemen, what, what comes to mind? Well, first of all, that Yemen is a place of beauty, of mystery, of wonderful, unique architecture, these beautiful tower-like houses that are rising above the mountains. Yemen reminds me of the Jambiya, you know, that dagger that people basically put uh, on a belt around their waist. It also tells me coffee. That is one thing that I love about Yemen, coffee. And also Yemen tells me of, you know, the wonderful people that worked in Saudi Arabia side by side, and the fact that they were of different cultures. You know, you think all Yemenis are the same. No, there are the Yemenis from Taz, the well-educated. There are the Yemenis from Hadramaut, the wealthy class who became the Bin Ladens, the Bin Mahfouz, you know, the uh, Bin Zagar, and all of these, you know, wealthy families in Saudi Arabia that we hear about. So Yemen is a mystery but at the same time, an open book. Well, just during my reading for these uh, episodes, you know, I, I was reminded of all the romantic associations that Yemen has. I mean, according to, I think, Muslim tradition, you know, Noah, the prophet Noah, uh, went to Yemen and built the capital city of Sana'a for his son Shem. The queen of Sheba, King Solomon's wife, Yemen. And in the more sort of Roman period, Arabia Felix, the land of frankincense and myrrh, the spice trade through Yemen, the caravans coming up the coast from Yemen to the imperial zones of the north. All of these images populate my imagination when I think of Yemen. Barat, you're a Yemeni. How true is that romantic vision? <laughs> well, I think when you speak to my uh, fellow Yemenis, we speak about the history as if it is today. So people We'll talk about the stories of the Queen of Sheba. They will tell the stories of uh, what happened in the medieval ages when all of those kingdoms and the fall of kingdoms and they fought in central Yemen as if it was just yesterday. So Amazing. it's pretty much the history is still present in the imagination. And I think it shapes how they relate to the present and how also they relate to the future. History is very much present with us as Yemenis. That's why Yemen is the perfect subject for conflicted bara. I can't. I'm just so excited. Uh, I mean, I, first of all, I think we need to make clear that Yemen is it's as old as time itself, but 
in terms of, of like a modern state, in terms of a unitary state, it's extremely young. And this is one of the interesting contradictions of Yemen, like one of the oldest places in the world, but very much still in a state-building process, perhaps a process that will never end. But, you know, until 1990, the land today known as Yemen, you know, the country of Yemen, has only really infrequently been politically united. You know, once in the 13th, 14th centuries, there was a Sunni dynasty that united the whole area. Then in the 17th, 18th centuries, there was a, a Zaidi dynasty. We'll talk about what these all what these means in a minute. Before we continue, let's let's get the lay of the land. And though there are many ways to subdivide that land, I would like us to subdivide that land into five different zones. So if you're looking at it sort of in your mind's eye, dear listener, uh, you have the coastal zone along the west coast, known in Arabic as Al-Tihama. It's very flat, it's very fertile, it's very hot. And then that coast sort of bends around the Bab el-Mendab Strait uh, along the south onto the Arabian Sea and the Indian Ocean. Uh, and that's where you have the amazing port city of Aden, the incredibly important city of Aden and its hinterlands, which is a kind of its own zone historically. And then further stretching out east, you have the Hadramaut and the desert of eastern Yemen, which eventually merges quite sort of indistinctly into the great empty quarter, the great Arabian desert, the majority of which is in Saudi Arabia. And that leaves the sort of mountainous strip down the middle, the south half of which you could call central Yemen. It's where the capital is, Sana'a. It's where the other great city, Taz, is. Uh, it's where the vast majority of the population of Yemen live. And finally, the fifth zone of Yemen, the northern half of that mountain region, the highlands, the north, the land of the Zaydis. And so this is where <laughs> we have to talk about the Zaydis. Eamon, how are we going to talk about the Zaydis in a way that's not too complicated? Because, you know, you start talking about branches of Shia Islam and very quickly you're in the weeds. You know, who's the imam here? Five imams, six imams, seven imams, 12. It never ends. How, Eamon, would you simplify Zaydi Islam for the listener? Okay. So the mainstream Zaydism is described by Shia Muslims as the lighter version of Sunni Islam. While the Sunnis describe the uh, Zaydi branch of Shia as a Shia light version. So as you can see, <laughs> you know, both sides describe the other as a lighter version of the, uh, you know, what they are supposed to be. So it's, it's interesting. In a nutshell, it's basically they think that Imam Ali was the rightful successor for the, uh, for the Prophet. But while they approve that both Abu Bakr and Omar are uh, rightful leaders of Islam. So they don't have that sense of animosity towards the others. So this Abu Bakr and Omar, these are the first two caliphs of Islam, of Sunni Islam, which like 12 or Shia, the Iranian style Sh Shiism, they really do not like. But the Zaydis are, are, are cool about them. They, they, don't, they don't hate them. However, it's not as simple because Zaydism is divided into many, many different factions only three of them survived to this day. Zaydi Islam was introduced to Yemen a long time ago, in the ninth century, when uh, this guy Yahya bin Hussein, the Imam al-Hadi, was invited to Yemen. He was living in the Hejaz. He was invited to Yemen by some kind of warring tribes, hoping that he would bring some order to their society. So he was the first Zaydi leader in northern Yemen to govern the tribes in the highlands from which, you know, you come, Barah. And then from this man, Yahya bin Hussein, descended the Zaydi imamate of Yemen. This word imamate is important as we move the story onwards to like the Houthi movement and what's going on in Yemen today. It has been described thus by a, a scholar, an imam in the Yemeni context, a central religious authority who oversees local dynamics of tribal federations and alliances. Because like the thing about the imams in Yemen, the Zaydi imams, is that they, they never had or only infrequently had like really direct political power. It was a religious office with political overtones. And another thing that made it very interesting is it did not follow a strict dynastic principle. So the imamate did not pass 
from father to son in, at all, the Zaidi Imam of northern Yemen was chosen by a council of, of Hashemites and religious scholars, you know, based on a, a long, quite detailed list of qualities, of attributes that he, he must have. And potential imams were subjected to close public scrutiny. So unlike, say, in 12-er Shi'ism, there is no like infallible imamate in Zaidi Islam. Uh, but maybe for that very reason, it was not great at cementing a central state power. It was like a man who was trying to coordinate between tribal alliances and allegiances and things like that. So, Barat, what do you think? Have I done a good job there at, at describing the Zaidi imamate? Yes, it is, except with one important caveat. So, uh, the imam is not subject to public scrutiny. He is uh, monitored by a council of uh, scholars who are also Hashemites. So actually the normal public, the, uh, I would say normal citizens, do not have the right to question the Imam because he himself is a descendant of Prophet Muhammad. Well, Bara, you forgot to tell the dear listeners some teeny tiny minute detail here. And that is that you yourself is a descendant of some of those Hashemites who not only chose the imams, but they were imams themselves. This is crazy. Once again, I'm, I'm the only man out. So Eamon, you know, he's famously a descendant of the, <laughs> of the Afghan royal family or whatever. And we might as well take the cat out of the bag. You're, you're related <laughs> to the prophet of Islam himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. So I am. <laughs> a descendant of uh, al-Imam al-Mutahhar ibn Sharaf al-Din. He is this famous warlord that uh, fought the Ottomans when they tried to occupy uh, North Yemen. And uh, the story goes, uh, he was the leader of the army, but he got injured in one of the battles. So one of the uh, rules to become an imam, you should be perfect from any physical imperfections. I mean, I'm afraid not too friendly towards disabled people, but there you go. And his father told him, well, now you can't be an imam because you have, you have an injury. So he said, well, you know, screw you guys. I'm leading the army. He imprisoned his father and his younger brother. And then he became this basically powerful uh, warlord, new imam who ruled in uh, North Yemen. And he's known to be very, very brutal. One of the famous stories is that he marched his army towards the province of Al-Bayda, and that's in central Yemen, to squash a revolt. And what he did is he killed 1,000 tribesmen wow. and then ordered the remaining 1,000 to carry the heads of their fellow fighters and walk all the way, march all the way into Sana'a, the capital. And then once they arrived, he beheaded them. He's remembered to be a person of, you know, character. <laughs> a charming man, Bara. You must be very proud <laughs> to be descended from such a man. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is that he's mentioned in Zaidi books, basically glorified as this great uh, warlord who was um, spreading the message of Zaydism into all parts of Yemen. Well, he may have tried, but he didn't succeed in spreading Zaydism to all parts of Yemen. And that makes, that's one of the most important things to understand about Yemen. I mean, there's a kind of narrative out there that like for a thousand years, Zaydi imams ruled Yemen. And it's not true. <laughs> it's, a, it's an exaggeration of the truth. The Zaydi imams, uh, like your ancestors, Bara, you know, their center of power was in the north, it was itself often not directly you know, wielded by the imams themselves, but it was through tribal alliances and things. Yeah. It only infrequently spread beyond the, the north. And so it's not really true that Zaidi imams ruled Yemen for a thousand years. So now moving on, we can just quickly zoom over a few centuries. The Ottomans arrive in Yemen. They fight their way up the mountains. The imam pushes them back at one point. They come back. So you know, Ottoman power waxes and wanes in Yemen over several hundred years. Uh, during which time, you know, local Sunni sultans in the south and, and elsewhere also have power. And though, as I said, the imams never maintained uh, political control over the whole of Yemen and even only sometimes over the north, nonetheless, and this is what we have to really be serious about here, 
the Imamate period of Yemen plays a very, very important role in the Yemeni imagination up to the present day, for good or for ill. I mean, some Yemenis romanticize the period of the Imams and others villainize the period of the Imams, but it's still very present to Yemenis. Isn't that right, Barak? Yeah, exactly. So people in Yemen, and especially in North Yemen, are quite split about how they feel towards the imams and the different uh, and the different imams who ruled Yemen. They were nevertheless very very brutal, I would say. And they were able to consolidate power in a handful uh, number of families who also shared the, the claim that they are descendants of uh, Prophet Muhammad. But then beyond that, um, it basically amongst Yemenis, they have different feelings towards was it a good period or rather a bleak period of Yemen. But uh, don't you find it a bit fascinating that we are talking about the imamate and the feeling of the Yemenis about the imamate, which has, you know, uh, ceased to exist more than half a century ago. And, you know, it is expected that Abdul Malik al-Houthi, the leader of the Houthi movement, is about to declare an imamate himself. Yeah, that is uh, quite fascinating. Yeah. And dear listeners, you know, by the time this comes out, you may have already heard the news that Yemen has been transformed into an imamate by the leader of the you know, insurgent group called the Houthis. Indeed, Eamon. And right now, it's certainly worth watching to see if the Houthis will be emboldened to proclaim their imamate by the crisis in Israel, which is engulfing the region. Uh, but back to the history. The Ottomans come and then the Ottomans go. And in the meantime, in the south, the British Empire had set up shop in Aden, establishing an imperial protectorate stretching across south Yemen all the way across the Hadramaut. But in the north of Yemen, after the Ottoman Empire withdraws, they're replaced by what's called the Mutawakkalite Imamate or Kingdom of Yemen. It's established by the Imam Yahya in 1918, after the Ottomans leave. Now, it was during this period that modern Yemen begins to come into focus. He was an extremely conservative imam king of Yemen. He really wanted not only to maintain, but to strengthen the aristocratic, very socially stratified nature of northern Yemeni society with the imam at the top and then these aristocratic Hashemite families below him kind of governing everything with at the very bottom people often treated like serfs, like peasants, indeed like slaves. I mean, is that is that speaking too harshly, Bara, or is that more or less what northern Yemen was like during the kingdom phase in the early 20th century? Well, I think you did explain it uh, quite well. But to go into a little bit of uh, a quick summary, following the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the Mutawakkilat kingdom and the family becomes the undisputed rulers of North Yemen. And uh, the British were still occupying the south of Yemen, but in the north, they create this social hierarchy system, which basically makes the imam on the top of the hierarchy. Along with him or beneath him is the Hashemite families. Those are also families who claim they are the descendants of Prophet Muhammad. Like your family. <laughs> like my family. <laughs> and uh, beneath those are a group of a class called the judges. And those are people who have served in the judiciary or have served in disputes and so on. And then beneath that are the tribes. And those are the majority of Yemenis. Beneath those are basically working class, people like who work in manufacturing, um, butchers, hairdressers, and those are kind of looked down upon. Those are also intermarriages and are not usually allowed from this, uh, from this class. And then at the bottom are a community called the marginalized. Those are basically Yemenis who are of much darker skin and they trace their origins back to, back to Africa. Those are kind of the bottom of the, uh, of the hierarchy. Along with them, I would say there are other minorities like the Jews and the, and the Baha'is who don't have any rights at all. That sounds like India. Yeah, I was just going to say, Eamon, yeah, it, sound, it has sort of overtones of the Indian caste system. Yeah, goodness. Uh, it is. It is very similar. And it's very important because this socioeconomic caste system is in a slightly softer version, is slowly being introduced by the Houthis today. Oh, that is so interesting. They've been introducing through the last nine years, they've been introducing measures and laws to emphasize 
this social hierarchy. They're trying to bring it together, but slowly. Well, back to the Imam Yahya and the Mutawakkalite kingdom of Yemen. What's fascinating to me about this is that Imam Yahya, in order to build a modern, a quasi-modern, though he was no modernizer, but a, a more modern kind of kingdom, he played a huge role in the erection of this story of an unbroken imamate for 900 years that has governed Yemen by, by divine right. And I love this, this little story, Eamon, which I'm sure you know. So, you know, during his reign, his long reign in the first half of the 20th century, Imam Yahya uh, clashed with, with the Saudis because there was a fighting over where the border of the expanding Saudi kingdom would be. And in the end, the Saudis gobbled up uh, a decent chunk of what was until then always just part of northern Yemen. And in 1933, King Abdulaziz and Imam Yahya met to discuss this dispute. And Imam Yahya is recorded as saying to King Abdulaziz, which is, this is some serious cheek, who is this Bedouin coming to challenge my family's 900-year rule? <laughs> what a thing to, to say to King Abdulaziz, honestly. Of course, King Abdulaziz showed him precisely who that Bedouin was before long. And having lost a chunk of his kingdom to that Bedouin, the Imam Yahya had no choice but to accept the fact that he needed something like a modern military. And as a result of this, he, he sent the, the famous 40, as they're known, the famous 40. 40 Yemeni military officers were sent abroad to receive modern military training. And ironically, this decision by the arch-conservative imam to modernize his military sowed the seeds of his kingdom's downfall. Well, revolutionary ideas actually started in Yemen in the 1940s. In 1948, a group of officers gathered and assassinated Imam Yahya. And then they introduced a constitutional monarchy that only lasted for literally 26 days before his son was able to mobilize uh, tribes and attack the capital, Sana'a. And he, he basically promised the tribes that he would allow them to loot Sana'a if they replace the constitutional monarch with him. And they did. They looted Sana'a. And it's still very much in the imagination of the people in Sana'a today. People remember very well the looting of Sana'a by the imam and his, uh, and his followers. And Imam Ahmed, his son, became uh, the ruler of Yemen until 1962, when there was another assassination attempt on his life. Yes, 1962, Barat, of course, is a very important year uh, in modern Yemeni history, specifically the 26th of September, 1962, still remembered by Yemenis today as a most momentous day. What happened? Well, this is uh, for the overwhelming majority of Yemenis is the most important day in their recent history. And uh, the reason is because almost a month before the 26th of September, there was an assassination attempt by those officers, again, by a group of those officers on Imam Ahmed. He survived the assassination attempt, but he suffered through his injuries until he died on the 19th of September, uh, 1962. Now, his son came into power, Imam al-Badr, and then he ruled uh, for just one week. His uh, method was basically, I'm gonna spread fear. Uh, these people need to be afraid of me. And that basically, in basically was the trigger point that led the officers to topple him on the 26th of September, 1962. So these officers, these are Yemeni officers who, as you say, Bara, they attacked the, the royal palace, overthrowing the imam on the 26th of September, 1962. These officers explicitly modeled themselves on the free officers of Egypt who precisely 10 years before had overthrown Fat Farouk. And at this point, this was an invitation <laughs> for a momentous intervention into Yemen by none other than Ayman's <laughs> best friend and long-term friend of the show. Who am I talking about, Ayman? Oh, yes, indeed. President Jamal Abdel Nasser of Egypt. Thomas, you have to understand that Nasser was already 
drunk on the euphoria of uh, monarchies falling one after another. He and his uh, comrades, uh, you know, the free officers of Egypt, overthrew uh, King Farouk, also known as uh, Fat Farouk. <laughs> you remember in the operation Fat Fucker, <laughs> you know, organized by the CIA. Then, of course, uh, a few years later, you know, the Iraqi officers overthrew King Faisal, uh, the second of Iraq, the Hashemite, and uh, someone who I adore so much. And you can hear that in the episode about Iraq uh, from season three. And then he started to feel that, hey, the monarchies are like dominoes and one falling after another. It's 1962 already. He saw how, you know, uh, the fall of the monarchies is benefiting his socialist flavored Arab nationalism. And if this could be achieved in Yemen, then the next in the domino will be Oman, will be Saudi Arabia, it will be all the other, you know, uh, Western-influenced kingdoms. And therefore, he thought that this is his moment to shine and to be the savior of socialist-flavored Arab nationalism. That's true, Eamon, but you've you've missed out on one important thing in Nasser's mind. I mean, long-term listeners of Conflicted will know that Nasser's great enemy on the global stage was the British Empire. And though we've not really mentioned it yet, throughout all of this history, and indeed from 1839 onwards, the British Empire was firmly established in Yemen, in southern Yemen, based in Aden, the important port city of Aden. And so, after officers modeling themselves on his free officers movement overthrowed the imam when they invited nasser to come in and help them consolidate their revolution and set up a nasserist arab nationalist centralized socialist state in northern yemen he was very happy to oblige ah but this has caused significant pain for everyone for the egyptians themselves for the Saudis, but most importantly, it was a devastating seven years of conflict and war in Yemen. Well, actually, for many, many Yemenis, Jamal Abdel Nasser is revered in their eyes. Nasser is remembered across many history books and researchers and journalists, not very foundly, I would say, like like Ayman. (laughs) (laughs) But in the eyes of many Yemenis, actually, they do feel that they owe him the gratitude of actually helping them to get rid of the imam, because without his help, it would have been impossible to defeat the imam. And Nasser was very committed. He sent troops, thousands and thousands of troops into Yemen. 70,000 troops, 70,000 Egyptian troops were sent to Yemen. Yeah, can you imagine that? 70,000 to just back up the this newborn republic. But more importantly than just those 70,000, the new idea of a modern state, a modern republic, started to take shape in, uh, in North Yemen. So the Egyptians also sent thousands of teachers, thousands of uh, doctors. The new republic started to invest in uh, schools, hospitals, and started to basically send uh, students to, to, to study abroad. So Yemen in its more modern form started to come together in an area that actually was pretty much very much isolated under the imamate. And I think the most important thing is that those officers introduced something called the Articles of the Revolution or the Goals of the Revolution. But the most important part was the first article, which is they promised the idea of, of Yemen becoming united, so to get rid of tyranny and colonialism. So they started to promise that they're going to start a revolt against the British in the South, but also to eradicate all privileges and differences that exist between the uh, all social classes. And that resonated with the wider public. So what started as a military takeover became more of a popular uprising because the wider public felt that this young republic is promising them something that they've been deprived from for decades, actually. The revolution of 1962, which then then led to, at times, a very brutal civil war in the north, has a lot of resonances with with the present day, which I find fascinating. The last imam, Imam al-Badr, he didn't actually die. He escaped north and eventually made his way to Saudi Arabia. (laughs) 
who housed him and supported him financially and militarily, along with his tribal confederates from northern Yemen, to resist the Nasserite Republican takeover of the north. So very strange echoes with the present, you know, where, you know, the Houthis conquered Sana'a and the president of Yemen fled to Saudi Arabia, where they are intervening in order to overthrow, uh, uh, you know, the, the consequences of a coup. It's a reminder that what's happening in Yemen now has happened before. Yemeni history is full of these repeating kind of dynamics, which we'll bring out. Anyway, in the end, the revolution succeeded and the Saudis failed in their attempts to reinstate the imam. Not only did they fail, they changed tack and eventually supported the revolution once it was clear that the imam uh, was going to fail. But that wasn't the end of Nasser in Yemen, was it, Barat? Well, Nasser, uh, as if his hands were not full already in North Yemen, he started to encourage the South to revolt against the British and uh, started supporting them as well. And in his mind, he's going to be this great unifying figure for both North and North and South and uh, South Yemen. So he 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 was pretty much occupied, but Yemeni started to feel a little bit unsatisfied by the way he's, he's, he's handling the situation. They started intervening more and more in the, the internal affairs of, uh, of Yemen. Uh, Nasser was basically, in the eyes of many, even revolutionists, this narcissist, egocentric uh, guy. And actually, in 1966, the Yemeni cabinet traveled to Egypt to meet him. And instead of meeting them, he threw them all in prison. <laughs> <laughs> You you say 1966, they must have met Said Qutb before he was executed. Well, maybe. We, <laughs> we, we, we need to ask any 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 surviving members of the of the of the cabinet. But um eventually after the defeat of Nasser in 1967 by Israel, he decided that actually he needs to get them out. And this is because of the initiative led by Saudi Arabia, whom they met with Nasser in Sudan. And the president of Sudan at the time, Hamad Mahjoub, told Nasser, our information tells us that actually the Yemeni cabinet are in your prison. <laughs> and he felt uh, that it's time to get them out and start negotiating this new deal in which Saudi Arabia favored. They favored this idea of we can reconcile between the different Yemeni factions, but we can keep the imam. They gave them basically residency and then citizenship, the Saudi citizenship inside Saudi Arabia, but they reconciled between the two main warring parties in uh, in Yemen and formed the, the, the new republic. There's another really tragic story from the Nasserite intervention in Yemen, which I didn't know about, you know. I mean, the Egyptian army in Yemen behaved abominably. Uh, they used tear gas against their enemies in the north and then poison gas. Uh, the Egyptian air force dropped poison gas bombs on the north in order to root out partisans, imam partisans from caves in the mountains. There are some echoes there of the recent bombing campaign in, in the north of Yemen now as well. So again, history repeats itself in Yemen. Yeah. And anyway, in the end, Nasser withdrew, but the revolution in the north succeeded and a new Yemen there was being created by a modernizing, centralizing, socialist, come Arab nationalist regime. And we're going to take a break now after this very long first half of an episode on Yemen. And when we come back, we're going to throw our attention to the south uh, of Yemen, where the British were facing problems of their own. Stay tuned. We're back, dear listener. We're here with our friend Bara Sheban, uh, a Yemeni helping us work our way through the convoluted and complex history of Yemen. When we left Nasser's attempt to establish <laughs> an Egyptian satellite in the north of Yemen failed, but the Yemeni revolution in the north succeeded, and Yemen was put on its path towards modernization, at least in the north. How about the south? As we mentioned, since 1839, the British had ruled the south of Yemen. Uh, it, it was called the Aden Protectorate. Uh, it was a very loose, typically British colonial affair where the British had a light touch in the region, working very closely with a patchwork of tribal leaders across the deserts of Hadramaut and the hinterlands of Aden. But like everything British of the 1960s, 
it began to fall apart. Nasser, uh, as soon as he in- intervened in the north, started to support anti-colonial factions in the south. And uh, on the 14th of October of 1963, the Aden Emergency began. This is when southern Yemenis mark their national independence. Isn't that right, Barak? Yeah, exactly. And uh, not only just the southern Yemenis, actually, they were accompanied by many of those northern officers who studied and were inspired by revolutionary ideas in Egypt, came to their aid and uh, to support them in their ongoing uh, battle against the British, because in the minds and hearts of Yemenis, this is when the idea started to come. This is the moment we're going to unify the country, both North and South Yemen is going to be one. I'm glad you bring that up, Barat, because that is really where this story is headed towards this sort of sudden, enthusiastic ambition to make Yemen one. As we said at the first in the first half, for many centuries, Yemen had been really not one. And yet for some reason, somehow, in the hearts of the people known as Yemenis, they felt we must be politically one. And having thrown off the imam in the north, the question was, can we throw off the British in the south and unite? The war against the British raged for four years and is a very complex affair because South Yemen was, after 130 years of British domination, a very different kettle of fish from the north. It had not had an imam. It was not hierarchically and aristocratically stratified like in the north. There was no caste system there. The British had modernized their part of Yemen to some degree. Isn't that right, Barat? So Aden was very much developed. Um, Many of even the people who were escaping the north of Yemen, uh, fearing from the imam, found refuge in Aden. And people had the access to information, newspapers were being printed. So Aden looked like a very, very modern city. The rest of the South, however, was pretty much marginalized. But the the, the British did invest a lot of their effort and money and time on Aden itself. And uh, that's why it looked uh, very uh, different. And the signs of the British are seen until today. You could see the tunnels that they built, the port, uh, many of the inner city of Mu'alla, this modern city that was built in, in, in the heart of Aden. So this is pretty much the imagination. This cosmopolitan city goes back all the way to the, to the days of the British rule in, in Aden. British rule in Aden ended in 1967 when facing for three years this sort of anti-colonial uprising, they decided to cut and run. And they left a power vacuum behind them because the forces that had been fighting them were not in any way themselves united. And like so many tales around that time of anti-colonial revolution, the revolutionaries immediately turned on each other uh, and they were divided. Some of them were Nasserists, straightforward Nasserists, but others were hardline Marxist communists. And three years after the British left, the Marxists won. And throughout the 70s, there was this very strange (laughs) fact that in the south of the Arabian Peninsula was a fully-fledged Soviet-backed Marxist-Leninist state. Barat, today in like Yemen and you as a Yemeni, like what does it mean that for that period there were like actual communists ruling half of Yemen? Well, it was a strange um, era for uh, for Yemen. So uh, you have communist ideas spreading now, not just in the south, but they're, they're slowly spreading the um, communist ideas to the uh, north of Yemen. The Socialist Party became the undisputed ruling party in in, uh, in South Yemen. But also that period from the 19, 1970 onwards was a very brutal and dark period for South Yemen. It witnessed presidents being assassinated, people being executed over their, uh, over their opinions, a lot of Southerners fleeing the south of Yemen to the north or to other Arab countries. So it's a, it's a very strange and, and weird times that happened from the 1970s onwards. Indeed, I mean, I would say that it is ironic that the southern Yemen established a properly 
in a Marxist communist state. And yet those who fled southern Yemen went into Saudi Arabia and the UAE, and there they established some of the most successful capitalist enterprises ever, businesses, banks, construction companies, uh, they established uh, food companies, they established, you know, businesses that span now generations. It was a testament that communism was so unnatural to southern Yemen because the people there were capitalists. Well, you you say that, Ayman, because the new state, the new communist state in South Yemen, nationalized all businesses. So people were not allowed even to have properties. They confiscated lands. Businessmen had to flee if they want to survive with their uh, capital. And that's why they went, they ended up in all of those neighboring, uh, a neighboring country. It was a properly communist country. I mean, I think the listener just needs to understand that. I mean, maybe... There were positive sides to this. For example, like tribalism in South Yemen had been thoroughly discredited because the tribal sheikhs had worked alongside the British to rule the British protectorate. And once communism came and and took over South Yemen, tribalism and tribal symbols were abolished to the extent that that's possible. But it was there was a very concerted effort to get rid of tribalism in South Yemen, uh, which of course would uh, continue its sort of its move away from North Yemen, where tribalism remained extremely powerful. But also, communist South Yemen was this was a magnet really for anti-colonial, revolutionary, and and even terrorist movements from everywhere. So South Yemen became one of these places in the globe where if you were like an Irish Republican army dude or some kind of Algerian, <laughs> I don't know, some Algerian rebel, you end up in South Yemen for training and for for refuge. South Yemen was weird, supported by not just the Soviet Union but also China right there in 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 what was still a very poor part of the world. Exactly. They caused even trouble for Oman. You know, there was the uh, revolution in Zafar which is the most western part of Oman, the mountains of Salala and Zafar. These mountains witnessed fierce fighting between those who opposed the sultan of Oman and his forces, and they were supported by the communist government in Aden. And the communist government in South Yemen also supported communist insurrectionists in North Yemen. Indeed. And that's where any attempts that any Yemenis might have made for unification in the 1970s were not successful. Uh, In 1972, especially, facing communist uh, insurrectionists in the North, supported by the South, the northern government, you know, had to fight back. And there was a brief war between North and South in that year followed which there was this sort of actual formal official attempt to unite and something called the Cairo Declaration was signed to bring the two countries together or to begin a process whereby that could happen. But it failed. The two sides were just too different, ideologically and now socially as well. Very sort of different people living in the same you know, historic land. It was a strange, a strange period. I mean, they uh, both sides are aspiring towards unity and unification is kind of occupying the minds of people all the time. Yet they're fighting at the same time and really brutal fighting occurred. And by one, one side is the Socialist Party and they feel pretty much now confident that they can take on the North. They caused a lot of uh, instability, a lot of fighting. And uh, as a result, there were many presidents being toppled and even assassinated, both in the North and in the uh, uh, North and the South. By the end of the 1970s, the North was in quite a bad way, both politically and economically. And in the midst of this scenario in the North, a man arrived on the scene who, at the time, no one would have thought stood a chance in hell to become, for 33 years, (laughs) the great strongman of Yemen. And of course, I'm talking about Ali Abdullah Saleh. Barak, when you hear the name Ali Abdullah Saleh, the president of Yemen from 1978 onwards, the man whom the Arab Spring protesters in 2011, and you were among them, Barak, wanted out of office, when you hear this name, Ali Abdullah Saleh, notorious strongman of Yemen, what do you think? 
Well, what I think about him is this notorious, uh, very clever individual. He's a tribal man, but also at the same time, he understands the complicated and structure and mixture of, uh, mixture of Yemen. He's able to build alliances, but also destroy alliances at the same time. He jumps through hoops quite cleverly at different times of his presidency. He's also known in the 70s as the smuggler. He used to smuggle uh, alcohol into uh, North Yemen from the port of uh, Mocha because he, he himself was a, was a military officer. Yeah, and no doubt a heavy drinker for that reason. <laughs> Indeed. Ali Abdullah Saleh was born in 1942 in Beit al-Ahmar, which is what about twenty miles southeast of Sanaa? Is that right? Yeah. It, yeah. it was very tribal territory. The tribe, the local sub-tribe, the Sanhan tribe, which was part. And dear listener, sadly, you just have to get to grips with the tribes. This is Yemen, right? So the Sanhan tribe was part of the Hashid Tribal Federation, or is part of it, an extremely important power block in northern Yemeni politics. The Hashid Tribal Federation. And Ali Abdullah Saleh was totally integrated from a young age into this tribal world of northern Yemen. And actually, I have a question for you, Eamon. Are there overtones here of Saddam Hussein's background? Because he was also very tribally integrated, wasn't he? Oh, no question. No question that Saddam Hussein was tribally integrated, but not to the same extent as Ali Abdullah Saleh. Yemen definitely is far more tribal than Iraq. Even though Saddam was born in the most tribal part of Iraq, which is Ambar, you know, which has, you know, a lot of tribes like Al-Jabur and Al-Shimmer and Dlaim. However, Yemen, you mentioned the tribal federation of Hashid. There are the equivalent of Hashid. There is Bakil, which is the other big tribal uh, federation. So peace in Yemen depended on the leadership of Hashid and Bakil, these two super you know, tribal federations, getting on well together. But not only that, um, Hashid was kind of the more centralized, uh, more organized, I would say, tribal structure. So and Ali Abdullah Saleh was able to understand the politics of tribes very, very well. So Hashid is actually much smaller than Bakil, but they're more unified and they're more organized. And that made the leader of Hashid, which was a very famous Sheikh, Sheikh Abdullah bin Hussein al-Ahmar, who joined the officers as he made his tribe join also the officers in the 1962 revolution, but made him a very important power broker, if, if, uh, if you would say. And that relationship, he, he maintained this strong ties with Ali Abdullah Saleh, trying to maintain uh, the peace within the tribes, but also extending that peace with the uh, Bakil Confederation, which is another, as you said, important uh, confederation. So uh, the Ali Abdullah Saleh himself was not from a particularly prominent family. His father was a blacksmith. And when he was a teenager, he joined the army, the imam's army. This was before the revolution. And uh, he participated on the side of the revolutionaries in the revolution. He fought valiantly. He was known as a hero of the revolution. I mean, he, he claimed he was at least. <laughs> uh, and his rise through the ranks in the army was pretty quick to the extent that by 1976, He'd become a full colonel uh, in the army overseeing a mechanized brigade. So Ali Abdullah Saleh is a military man through and through. Uh, the following year in 1977, he's given his first political appointment where he becomes the head of security for Ta'iz, a city in central Yemen, south of Sana'a. And in 1978, only one year later, he's appointed president of North Yemen. He's only 35 years old. His predecessor was assassinated. In fact, two of his predecessors had been assassinated. No one expected him to last. Why was he chosen, Barak, to be president, and why did he survive? It was very interesting, uh, unique circumstances that put him as the the runner for uh, for for presidency. The presidential council, or you could say the leadership of the military, were meeting. And they decided they need someone to come on temporary basis because they need, we need a president. 
And people thought, let's put this guy for a week. There's another suggestion, let's put him for a month. And then they have elections in the council or make what was called back then Medlis al-Shab, which is the parliament to decide. But Ali Abdullah Saleh was a very much well embedded within the military. So he knows what he was doing. There are rumors that actually he himself participated in the assassination of President Ibrahim al-Hamdi, who ruled uh, Yemen from 1974 until 1978 and became effectively the deputy of Ahmed al-Ghashm, who only ruled for nine months before he was assassinated by a bomb that was sent in a diplomatic package from the South by the Socialist Party. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Oh, man. Dear listener, I mean, Yemen, isn't it great? It's great. I love it. Basically, Ali Abdullah Saleh can be brutal. And actually, after he came to power, there was a coup attempt against him by the supporters of Nasser, and then he executed them. And then again, there was uh, another insurgency attempt against him in the early 80s, supported by the uh, Socialist Party, and he did crush them. So he would, I would say, tend to brutal tactics if he needs to. Well, it was this man, Ali Abdullah Saleh, who in the late 70s, early 80s, was the one who was sort of looked to as the leader of Yemen to possibly broker this long hoped for union between North and South. But, um, you know, in 1979, for example, unity between North and South seemed as far away as ever. That year, there was another war between the two of them. And it looked really bad for the North. Um, at that point, you know, the South was still a Soviet client state. There was a lot of Soviet military advice in the South. And it was only because the U.S. spooked by the recent Iranian revolution, <laughs> spooked that you know, it was going to lose another, <laughs> another uh, Middle Eastern state to the Soviets, intervened on, on Ali Abdullah Saleh's side, sending tanks and anti-tank missiles to the North, that that war ended without the South winning. So it was a really tricky time for Yemen. And then almost like, luckily, I don't know if that's the right word to say, luckily for Yemen, in the 1980s, politics in the South really began to fray at the seams. It was a real communist shit show there with different kind of partisans of various forms of Marxism fighting each other leading in the end to a terrible civil war. So it was 1986 and the Socialist Central Committee was basically very much divided. Now, they say they were divided among basically between different Marxist ideologies, but actually in the heart of it, (laughs) it was very tribal. (gasps) Tribes, tribes, tribes. It's always tribes. (laughs) Exactly. And I think it proves what Ayman said in a previous episode, the Arab creature is a tribal creature in his heart. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You guys can say it. You're Arabs. I'm not allowed to say it. (laughs) So basically, the um, uh, Central Committee of the Socialist Party were split between the supporters of the sitting president, Ali Nasser Muhammad, and his opponent uh, mainly was Abdel Fattah Ismail, who was this big ideologue who was living and studying in Moscow, and basically they they refer to him as the father of Marxism in Yemen. And he came back to Aden, and that split the Socialist Party between those two camps. Now, Ali Nasser Muhammad thought actually that Abdul Fattah is going to topple him in a soft coup. So this is the president Ali Nasser, the sitting president, is afraid that his rival is going to overthrow him. Exactly, exactly. Because his rival was the former president and still has um, had a lot of supporters in the military and in the and in the government. So they elected the the Central Committee of the Socialist Party of 15 members. Now, surprise, Abdel Fattah was able to put eight of his supporters and seven were left to Ali Nasser, uh, Ali Nasser Muhammad. Somehow the president of South Yemen has fewer members on the Politburo, on the kind of social, on the committee that runs the country than his rival. This isn't good. And, and things came to a head on January 13th, 1986. Exactly. Now, both sides accuse each other of plotting to assassinate the other. So Ali Nasser Muhammad, so he said he was attending this meeting and he thought that actually 
Abdul Fattah is going to assassinate him just before he enters into the hall. Abdul Fattah and his supporters say, actually, no, we were just meeting to discuss extending powers of the president and they need to limit his powers. So Ali Nasser Muhammad did send his bodyguard and his secretary into the meeting and it looked like the president is arriving. So they even put his mug. He had his famous mug that he drinks his tea and brought the, the his papers and bag and everything. So it looked like the president is about to arrive while everyone was, was attending. But the interesting thing is that the seven members who are the supporters of Ali Nasser Muhammad, the sitting president, were not there. So they were under the illusion that they were about to arrive. The president's bodyguard opens the bag and he brings out a machine gun and starts shooting everyone in the meeting. And almost everyone were basically killed in the spot, except for uh, Ali Salim al-Bid, this other figure who basically pretended that he is dead. And also Abdul Fattah Ismail, whom there is a lot of rumors on how he died. People say that he escaped, but then was shot on his way out. But they were all killed except for Ali Salim al-Bid, who basically came out of the meeting and Ali Nasser Muhammad had a televised uh, speech, but he didn't know that Ali Salim al-Bid had survived. And the Ali Salim al-Bid came, came out basically seeking revenge. And they enter a brutal fighting inside Aden, leading to the death of more than 10,000 people. Well, more. I've read 25,000 people died. Uh, it could be because there is no actual exact number, but it could be even more than 20,000, as you said, in just a, a short period of less than 10 days. So the sitting president's bodyguard enters the Politburo building, pulls out a machine gun, opens fire <laughs> on the president's uh, opponents. From what I read, their bodyguards, who are also present, they pull out their guns and there's a massive live firefight in the in the room where everyone's killed except the one guy who manages to escape unbeknownst to the president who has manufactured this whole bloodbath. And following this, South Yemen politics falls apart. The Communist Party was absolutely unable to keep the show on the road after that. It broke the system and it was really unsustainable for the South Yemeni communist system to, to continue, especially when, you know, in the midst of all this fighting, the president of South Yemen, Ali Nasser Muhammad, flees and he flees to the north. Yeah, exactly. He flees to the north of Yemen and leaving his supporters behind, whom many of them were, <laughs> were executed. And Ali Salam al-Bid, the guy who survived, the only survivor of that meeting shootout in, in Aden, comes out to become the president of South Yemen. What do we think, guys? Is he the, the luckiest Arab of the 20th century? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not, not for too long. I mean, he's going to be then. <laughs> 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 Well, no one's lucky for very long in Yemen, uh, except Ali Abdullah Saleh. But even his luck runs out, as we'll find out later. But for now, <laughs> with Elbiz now president of South Yemen, he has to turn his attention to the big geopolitical fact of the Soviet Union's collapse. Indeed. I mean, the Soviets were losing in Afghanistan and the Soviet Union was unable to keep the satellite countries in Eastern Europe under check. And things were falling apart. The Soviet economy was falling apart and they were not able to sustain any of their allies, whether it's Cuba or Angola or, um, you know, South Yemen. The writing were on the wall, you know, in Cyrillic letters, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> Soviet aid to South Yemen was totally drying up in the late 80s. So in addition to their own internal fighting, South Yemeni politicians were seriously having to reconsider their model. It was not going to work anymore. And funnily enough, something that really shifted the story a bit and focused minds was the discovery of oil in Yemen. So oil was discovered in the province of Marib, and the, that oil well remains until today the richest oil well producing oil for Yemen until, until today. And Marib remains this oil-rich province in the, uh, in the north. 
Not only that, but President Saleh of North Yemen manages to uh, stabilize the uh, situation in, in the north. So the north was looking very stable, economically booming, and elections happen for the first time for the local councils. So things are in the north looking like they're heading towards basically in the right direction. And so beginning from this position of strength, Ali Abdullah Saleh is able to open up quite fruitful negotiations with President al Bid of South Yemen over the oil resources because the oil field, as it happens, straddled the border. And this became a kind of, let's say, a test case for, hey, maybe actually the two sides can get along. So the two states were racing towards this idea of unification, but they're very different at the same time. The north of Yemen is very capitalist. The south is very Marxist. The north of Yemen is very tribal, but in the south, the tribal system has been effectively dismantled. And the north of Yemen overall's economy is looking like it's bigger and is booming, while the leadership in the south are feeling constraints and feeling the pressure of the collapse of the economy. So it creates a, an, an interesting case of can you unify two different systems in this very complicated era of Yemen? And this actually was happening in Europe, in the heart of Europe, the unification of the two Germanys. One German state in the West was capitalist and the other one in the East was communist. So how do you unite them? The same question was also animating Arabia and the Gulf in particular. And it's the question that will largely animate <laughs> the next episode in this series on the modern history of Yemen. Because Ali Abdullah Saleh eventually, in negotiation with President Albiz of South Yemen, presented a unification deal quite favorable on the face of it to Southern politicians. And the Southern politicians agreed. And so, in 1990, the Yemeni Republic was founded, uniting North and South. President Saleh of the North remained president, and President Albiz of the South was vice president. And as we all know, Barat, it was happily ever after, wasn't it? Oh, indeed. I mean, maybe for four years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, we're going to put a pin in it, and we'll be back uh, next time, dear listener, to continue this exhaustive and possibly exhausting uh, survey of modern Yemen. Thank you very much, Bara. It's been fascinating and fabulous having you here, uh, and we look forward to having you with us again next time. Stay tuned. A reminder that you can follow the show over on Facebook and Twitter at MHConflicted. And for a deeper dive into all the subjects we talk about here on Conflicted, head over to Facebook and search Conflicted Podcast Discussion Group. There you will find other fans of the show engaging in heated debates, enlightening conversations, and just generally geeking out over Conflicted-related topics. Conflicted is a Message Heard production. This episode was produced and edited by Harry Stott. Sandra Ferrari is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Matt Huxley and Tom Biddle. <laughs>